Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. The conversation between Kathy Jordan and I that we're about to listen to was live-streamed and recorded as the keynote event for the 2021 Annual Meeting of the University of Minnesota's Institute in the Environment, which is also known as the IONI. It was a really fun conversation. Much of my scholarly work has been about the methodology and philosophy of community-engaged or participatory research. That research interest was largely spurred by some work Kathy's that I read as a doctoral student. So it's really cool to get to talk with Kathy about some of her work with the Phillips community in Minneapolis and how that work has affected how she approaches her scholarship. Anyhow, that's enough introduction. Here's a conversation. It's weird because we're in a Zoom meeting, so I feel like I'm obligated to go, can you hear me? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I can see some of you, so if, if you can hear me. All right, perfect. Um, thank you. Um, and welcome, everybody, to the first live recording of uh, Just Sustainability. I'm Clement Liu. I use he, him pronouns. And uh, I'm an assistant professor of environmental studies and the student success coordinator in the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Intercultural Programs at the University of Minnesota Morris. And I'm an IONE educator. And in the next 25 minutes or so, there's a few things that I wanted us to do together. So first, I was going to tell you a little bit about the podcast because you might not all be familiar with it. And so, you know, I think it's just good practice to let you know what you're sort of participating with. Uh, and then I'm going to introduce you to Kathy Jordan, who's the Director of Leadership and Education at IONE, as well as the Professor of Pediatrics at the, the Medical School at the University of Minnesota, and the Consulting Research Director of the Children and Nature Network. But finally, uh, and most excitedly, we're going to learn a little bit about Kathy's work, find out how she thinks about the relationships between sustainability, equity, and wellness, and learn a bit about community-based participatory research, or CDPR. And so... Uh, without further ado, and because we have a, a lot of ground to cover and very little time, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Just Sustainability. So it's a Just Sustainability was a project that was created with the help of Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor as part of my IONE Educators Project. And I had two kind of broad objectives when I was uh, thinking about this idea. So the first was to provide uh, scholars and higher ed professionals like myself with a, a grab bag or a, like a toolbox of resources for thinking about how to integrate sustainability and equity into uh, all of our scholarship and our work and our education and our teaching, um, it just struck me that those are sort of important things to do. And while there were, you know, resources here and there, there wasn't like everything kind of in one place. So I was going to try to get as much of it in one place as possible. And then the other thing I wanted to do was to do so in a way that's accessible and is an example of thinking about how to be more inclusive with our discourse in the higher ed. Right. So like we, we tend to have sort of very kind of narrow ways of communicating within higher ed. And I want to sort of broaden those to make it so that we have more organic, kind of more widely accessible, more broad conversations. And I think that adds a lot of robustness to the things that we can talk about. And then in the pursuit of those two objectives, uh, what I've done with each episode of Just Sustainability is to invite a guest who uh, strikes me as sort of a leader at the, the vanguard of the work to integrate uh, equity and sustainability, and then to ask them about like how they think about the, that intersection and then to find out about the strategies and uh, approaches they use to pursue both. And so that takes us to the most important part and most interesting part of tonight, which is to learn about Kathy Jordan. Uh, I always ask the same question of my guests uh, at the beginning of the show, which is you know, to ask them to describe themselves in their own words. And so Kathy Jordan, 
who is Kathy Jordan in the words of Kathy Jordan. So what are the sort of things that you think the audience should know to better understand who you are and the sort of work that you do? Thanks, Clement. Thanks for having me, first of all. And hello, Ioneers. Um, who am I? Well, I am a pediatric neuropsychologist by training. I'll define that for you. Um, that is a psychologist that looks at the health of the brain by assessing children's cognitive, emotional, and behavioral functioning. Mm. Within that, I had a specialty in, this is a really big word, neuropsychological toxicology, okay. which is about how do toxins in the environment affects, affect you know, brain development, essentially. Mm. And um, I would say that at least at the beginning, I was a traditionally trained researcher. Okay. And then I had an opportunity to participate in um, a couple of large community-based projects that spanned a decade that was a transformational decade for me and really just changed the course of my career. Okay. And that's a story that I'm going to tell in a minute. Um, I would say that the overarching goal of my career is the mutual thriving of children and the natural environment. And that that is informed by my identity as a mom who raised two kids um, in a way that hopefully built a strong connection to nature that enhanced their development and um, their care and concern for the earth. Um, And then lastly, I would say that I'm somebody who is really committed to equity and justice. I didn't necessarily have that as a core value in my upbringing, but as an adult and a professional, it's something that I've been really committed to. Okay. So something you said, I think, leads me to my next question. So you mentioned right, a decade-long study. And this is actually how I became familiar with your work uh, um, about a decade ago, which is weird to say that I was working a decade ago. I don't feel like I should be. I was working <laughs> three decades ago, so I don't want to hear that. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So about a decade ago, I was doing some work uh, thinking about like the, you know, the philosophy of CBPR. And I, I read a bunch of your work. Um, so you had worked on a, the, the project, I'm guessing you're there talking about, is the one that you did in the Phillips community, the CBPR study about lead exposure in children, mm-hmm. to think about how to like uh, minimize that exposure. Um, and then more recently, you've done a lot of work on uh, access to nature and how it affects uh, wellness and education. Uh, and so I kind of want to ask you about those things, right? So like, um, it seems that throughout your career, you've thought a lot about that intersection between right, uh, environment, health, uh, and wellness, and equity. And then you, you approached all of that by, you know, uh, using CPPR as sort of the kind of driving method to do that research. So, uh, yeah, how do you think about that intersection and how do you think about the, the approach to right, working at the intersection within higher ed? Well, that really is, I think, the story of my career. So I'd like to tell you a little bit about the arc of my career and how my commitment to the things you just articulated really came about. Mm-hmm. So when I started um, 30 years ago... <laughs> <laughs> it never feels like it no, should be... Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah, when I started my career, I was focused on how is the environment bad for kids, Um, housing environment, outdoor environment. And I did that through clinical work with kids with lead poisoning, and I did it through research on lead poisoning um, and how it affects kids and how do you prevent um, lead poisoning. Mm -hmm. And on the research side, I think I came into this with this really linear thinking way of viewing the world, a kind of a holdover from grad school where I was a research design minor and I thought right. about, you know, independent variables lead to <laughs> dependent variables and maybe there's some uh, mediators and moderators in there, but it's basically point A to point B, right. you know, kind of thinking. And 
then I went under, I underwent a transformation. These okay. projects that we did in the Phillips neighborhood, which I'm going to talk about soon, were community-based participatory research projects. And through that, I had the opportunity to really rethink how do I think about how things work in the world. Okay. So first I should define CBPR and you know, tell the audience a little bit about what that's about. So um, CPPR is not a research design. It's not a research method. Um, those things are determined by the research question. And I would define CBPR as an approach to the relationships among the academic and community partners. And it's all about how do you share power in decision-making? So what questions do we ask? Um, why are those important? How are we going to study those? What are we going to do with the results to make a difference um, in the world? And CBPR is grounded in a set of principles um, that are like shared power, mutual benefit, mutual respect, mm-hmm. um, a, re- a reflexivity, sort of co-learning, you know, kind of thing, and mutual trust. These principles grounded the work that we did um, in the Phillips neighborhood, two large CBPR projects, one that looked at um, how do we use peer education, like mom-to-mom, neighbor-to-neighbor, to to do primary prevention of lead poisoning? And the other was about neuropsychological impacts um, of childhood lead poisoning. These projects were conceived within a collaboration that was um, numerous residents of the Phillips neighborhood, parents of lead poison kids, et cetera, yeah. uh, nonprofit leaders, um, city and state health department staff, uh, Dolph's Bar Paint Company, <laughs> kind of ironic. Um, <laughs> the, um, let's see, Representative Karen Clark's office, and yeah. then five departments at the University of Minnesota, staff right. and faculty. And it was called the Phillips Neighborhood Healthy Housing Collaborative. Mm-hmm. And this collaborative was sort of the governing body. It was this vessel that held um, and oversaw these research projects. It had veto power over decisions, scientific decisions that might affect the community or its willingness to participate um, in the project. We um, had research offices in the community. We hired um, like 45 community residents um, from the five largest ethnic communities in the neighborhood to serve all the the functions on these research projects. We provided jobs training and a community-defined living wage. So it was co-conceived, it was co-implemented, and while community members weren't sitting at computers analyzing the data, we were all together in how did we interpret that data? How did we disseminate that and mm. you know make some impact in the community? Um, and so every step of the way, we shared the the responsibility, mm. the power to make the decisions, and the credit. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question. So I, I think a lot of people right who aren't familiar with CBPR might hear that and be like, "Well, that's <laughs> like like why <laughs> right why? Like, yeah yeah because right I think for someone who might not have thought about it it sounds like a lot of work and I, I don't know if right if you haven't been reflective about it if it's entirely obvious why that work is important and necessary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah I would like to ask you like what do you think are the things that are gained right like what how's the the research made more robust by yeah. having that sort of approach yeah um I'll talk about it more as I tell more of the story of the arc of my career, but just to quickly answer that, I think there are benefits to the community. There's Mm -hmm. benefits to the researcher, benefits to the science, Mm -hmm. and benefits to the institution. Um, 
I'm, I'll, I'll mention a few that are sort of about the science later. Um, I'll talk a little, right now just a, a minute about the benefits to the researcher. Okay. Um, and maybe we can talk later about some of the other ones. You know, researchers, I think, go into their careers with some passion. They want to do something good with mm. their, their academic skills. And I think grad school kind of beats it out of us a little bit. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a lot about reading and, you know, what came before us and methodology and that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, CDPR researchers find that this approach to research reignites the flame that they came into their careers with. And they feel like they're really doing something meaningful and relevant. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a good reason to do something. Yeah, it is. To yeah. recapture the joy. I mean, I think that's often something that's said you're appreciated, right? Like, uh, working sustainability can be a slog and it can be emotionally taxing, right? I mean, it's not like we're, we're, we're dealing with problems that we care about, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're often finding ourselves like, right, when progress doesn't happen as quickly or, you know, you know, folks who set policy make choices that, you know, might make us side-eye a little bit, right? It, it can be taxing. So I think, right, an approach to the work that brings joy is something that uh, shouldn't be underappreciated, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we should. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, I think, um, for me, this is a good sort of transition for me to talk a little bit about um, kind of back to how did this change me? I mentioned that this kind of changed the way that I thought about the world. Mm. I think CBPR researchers often have transformational experiences. So this this is mine. Yeah. So um, I um, I got to talk to people in the community that you wouldn't get to talk to, you wouldn't have reason to talk to in sort of traditional, as a traditional researcher. Mm -hmm. And I was able to learn from them things like um, all the stuff that was going on with families participating in our project and how that affected their interaction with our project, which Mm -hmm. might have implications for our results. Mm -hmm. In traditional research, you wouldn't really find that out. You might assume that there's some stuff going on out in the world that might be affecting families, but who knows what that is. And we just consider it noise. So we we had this special opportunity to really learn about the whole, you know, families situation. So I'll give you an example. It was the the residents of the Phillips uh, Healthy Housing Collaborative that Mm -hmm. cued us into why families, particularly the low-income families of color renters, Mm -hmm. were having... uh, no-show rates for their blood tests, for the the lead poisoning tests, at a higher rate. And they explained to us that these are families that fear going to the doctor to have the lead test, because if that lead test is positive, not only does that mean their child is possibly harmed, but they risk eviction. Because landlords, even though it was illegal, they would find a way to kick the family out. And the families didn't have much by way of resources they might end up in a shelter that was more lead contaminated than the home that they they just left. So it was really obvious that um, some some kids, some families had sort of accumulated risk Mm -hmm. um, and others had sort of buffers and protective factors that um, shielded them somewhat from these environmental harms. um, and, And those factors didn't really accumulate. So, this was um, a way that I realized that my linear way of thinking was, re- excuse me, <clears throat> really oversimplistic, um, and um, it sort of broke that um, that idea that you can go from point A to point B. The, the phenomena we were studying were um, really part of a larger ecology, mm-hmm. and I later learned that's called the Yuri Brafenbrenner socio-ecological model. 
And even later, I, I really talked about it in terms of systems thinking. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was a way of um, really, really understanding that everything's connected. It's like a spider web. If you jiggle a thread over here, it's going to jiggle a thread over there, right? Yeah. yeah. So it was that shift in my thinking from this uh, linear way to the spider web or the system way of thinking that really led to my first career transition at the university. Yeah. And um, while I was involved in that decade of research, I was also doing clinical work with mm. kids. And when you do clinical work, you make one child at a time, one patient at a time um, impact. And I had been getting into this idea of the system. How is the system? How are policies? How are, how's context um, affecting kids' wellness? And I wanted to explore that. And so I left um, my role as a clinical neuropsychologist I became the director of the Children, Youth, and Family Consortium, which um, another center on campus that utilized translation of research to inform policy and, and affect systems. Mm-hmm. I got to really understand systems better, how they influence kids. I got to deepen my knowledge of disparities and opportunity gaps and, and how those affect kids. It was also during that decade at CYFC that was like my children's middle and late childhoods. Yeah. And it was a time that they were really doing a lot of outdoor sorts of things. And I could really see the benefit to them in their wilderness adventure, environmental learning, you know, et cetera. And I thought, you know, this idea of how can the natural environment be good for kids as opposed to looking at how's the environment harm kids? Right, right. This is something that could really, you know, sort of catch my um, attention and um, I could get enthused about this, like for the rest of my career. So that led to my next career shift yeah. um, at the university. But I needed to retool because I I knew the kids side, but they didn't know the nature side. Right, right. Um, and so I knocked on the virtual door of the Children in Nature Network, um, and they invited me in, um, and eventually made me their consulting director of research, um, which I've been doing for eight years. And my job there is to collect and curate and translate and disseminate the research to a, a worldwide network of folks who make use of it in, in connecting kids to nature and advocating um, for that. This, this dive into the literature, it was a great way to retool. Like I was reading dozens of articles a month um, yeah. and I, it, it was a dive into a very interdisciplinary literature. Actually, I want to rephrase that. It was a, it was a, a dive into lots of literatures yeah. of a lot of disciplines because it involved physical health and mental health and public health and learning and education and planning and um, landscape design and ecology and natural resources, right? A yeah. lot of it I you know, didn't know previously. So it really gave me this appreciation for this kind of interdisciplinary systems, you know, mm-hmm. um, holistic way of thinking. And I quickly saw that the health and wellness and development of kids was really intricately and reciprocally intertwined with the health of the environment. Yeah. And, um, you know, high quality engagement in um, high quality nature, biodiverse nature, it benefits kids, physical health, mental health, educational outcomes, um, personal development, and, and care for the earth in a way that sort of in that reciprocal way, translates back or has this feedback back to improving the quality of the natural environment. Yeah. So it's a system, essentially. Yeah. 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 No. Um, and I also saw equity in this. The, there's a lot of inequity in who has access um, to quality nature and quality uh-huh. nature programming. Um, and yet there's a lot of hope because there's a lot of research that is starting to show that it's the the kids who are most at risk, the kids who also don't have access to nature, who 
show the most benefit when they do have access to nature. It's called the equigenic effect. And so if we just, it's an equalizer. If we just offer equal opportunity, we can get equal outcomes through through nature. Um, Can I tell you about how I got enthused about the climate and the sustainability stuff? And then we'll kind of, you know, wind this down a little bit and you can ask me more questions. So that that deep dive into the literature was how I started to do more reading about climate and sustainability. And I was seeing the same inequities that I was seeing in the nature, you know, um, kids in nature stuff. It's it's the same populations that are most at risk for harm from the climate and from from environmental degradation that have unequal access, you know, to nature. And um, I think I was I was thinking about um, how do I pull this into my own sort of understanding of the world and theory of change of what I want my my career to be? And I had this aha that the the research shows us that we don't get people who are, you know, that care for the earth, that care about climate, that care about the fate of the planet, unless they are emotionally connected to the natural environment. Mm. And that there's a, you know, a critical window, not the only window, but a critical window to do that connecting. And that's Mm -hmm. during childhood. And I thought I can bring together all these interests. I can, can, can bring my sort of kids in nature and my understanding of the human nature connection to this work on climate um, and the environment. Um, and that's how I landed at IONE, essentially, yeah. you know, directing the sustainability um, education and, and leadership development. Yeah. And um, I also feel like I, I've pulled forward that focus on community-based participatory research uh-huh. because the, these, these, populations that are at most at risk for climate harm and would most benefit from mitigation and and adaptation, um, they have to be part of the solution. They have to be part of the research that the decisions are based on. When you do that, communities know things about the issues. They have expertise and knowledge that Mm. can inform and make relevant the research questions. They can make the um, research designs and methodologies more valid and more rigorous. And um, when research on participatory research, that's kind of meta, but research on participatory research shows that these participatory approaches yield some self-efficacy and some sort of social cohesion and social capital so these communities not only benefit from the findings of yeah. the research, they can benefit from the process of the research, which usually doesn't happen in yeah. traditional research. So that's a little bit about how I think about why the participatory approach is so important yeah. um, and how I've come to understand that kind of intertwinedness of, of health and sustainability and equity. You know, the health of people and the health of the planet are intimately connected and you can't have a sustainable planet if there are winners and losers. Yeah. So there's a million things I want to talk to you about. Right? <laughs> like, so I would love to talk to you about like thinking about like, um, right, the the connections with the community and learning from the communities and like building self-efficacy in terms of like a land grant mission. Because right? mm. I think that'd be a great topic. I'd also love to ask you to think about, right, like, again, like the topic of finding joy and then thinking about, right, like, you know, how we tend to think about like the problems and we think about like the, the sort of the, the adverse impacts or like the inequities when it comes to like environmental justice, but we really think about like, how do we, you know, like how do we have fair access to like joy outside? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about more, but 
we only have 25 minutes. And so I'm going to have to like move to wrap this up. And I like to wrap up each episode by asking um, my interlocutor to, to ask me any questions or to like introduce any topics that like I might not have brought up. Right. Cause I don't like to steer the conversation completely. And I think as the host, I tend to do that. So I want to give you a chance to sort of take the reins and, you know, if there's anything you'd like to talk about that we haven't brought up in the last 20 minutes or so, this is a quick opportunity to do so before we wrap up. Yeah. Well, maybe we could go back and talk a little bit about, I, I mentioned like numerous stakeholders sure. that benefit. You know, I talked about the community benefits like by design. Yes. If the community is not benefiting, it's not CBPR essentially, right? right, right, right? right. Um, the, we talked a little bit about the researcher benefiting, the science benefits, um, you know, the, the relevance of the, the research question, the rigor um, of the methodology. Um, I think there's um, a a greater likelihood that there'll be buy-in from community members when they know other community members have been part of some of developing something. So there's increased trust, you know, of that research, which means easier to recruit, more likely to be retained. Um, the when members of the community from diverse cultures are part of developing. Um, methodology and measures, they're more culturally relevant and appropriate. You know, so there's lots of reasons why the science can be better. Mm-hmm. And then the institution, I think, benefits because that increased trust between the academics and the community members, eventually the, the, the institution um, essentially gets to benefit from, you know, that growing relationship and um, sort of builds some credibility. Um, mm, break with the down community. some of that town gown. Yeah, the town yeah. gown part, right? And so as a land-grant institution, we really need to be forging trusting relationships. And I think CBPR is a way to do that, not in a self-serving you know, way, like, you know, it's all about our optics <laughs> and, you know, that sort of thing, but in ways that really do yeah. benefit the community, the researchers, the science, and the reputation of the, the university. Well, and that's the only way you really can do it, right? I, it, people aren't stupid, right? Like if you're doing things for optics, they recognize you're doing yeah. things for optics and it doesn't, right? Like, yeah. you know, it doesn't help. Detector. Fix, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't, doesn't help the relationship at all. At this point, we reached the end of the session that Kathy and I had together at the IONI. However, given we had so little time for a keynote, Kathy and I decided that we'd meet again later and record a more extensive conversation for just sustainability. I'll upload those extended conversations in the next two episodes. So please join me in the next episode of Just Sustainability for more of Kathy Jordan. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.